Okay, we continue this week in our series of the most, mis- the most misused verses in the Bible. Surprising ways God's Word is misunderstood. And we're going to pick up in Romans 8 this week. Working all things together for good, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, I think, I think some of us have a real understanding of what this verse is pointing to. I think on the other hand, there's a lot of, um, a lot of this is just sort of, it's, it's, the, it's the theologically proper way of saying things, of saying all things happen for a reason. And uh, I actually hate it when people say that, all things happen for a reason. I guess there's a sense in which that's a good thing because people realize there's more to, like there's maybe something else going on. But think about your unbelieving uh, friends, colleagues, associates, family, when they'll say that. Right? They say, well, you know, hey, I, I you know something difficult will happen in their lives. And they'll say, well, you know, I know everything happens for a reason. And I have to want to ask, but don't, because you don't, you know, sort of ask people when they're down. You know, well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean all things happen for a reason? What's the reason? As for, what good is it to know that it happens for a reason if the reason is unknown? Right? Why do you suppose people say that? Well, everything happens for a reason. And in a way, I guess it's an admission of powerlessness to some extent. But if you don't know the reason why things are happening, yes. Isn't that succumbing to fate? It sort of is, yeah. It's good, that's a good point. A little fatalistic, deterministic, you know. Uh, Charles Krauthammer said this week, and now I know he's probably a, I don't know if he's, a, I don't know what his religious background is, but, you know, he's got a couple of weeks left to live, and so he says, you know, I wanted to, I thought I was going to rebound, things were looking good. Up until a month ago, I had no cancer in me, but now it's come back and it's radical, and at best I have two weeks. He had a, he had a stage four, he had a, a tough cancer to begin with. Yes, Tony? I don't want to defend that kind of answering or, or not knowing, but we kind of say the same thing, but at least we attach God to it. In this, so. Well, that's, what I'm, that's my point, too. I, say, I think theologically, we just sort of give it a theological sense, but what does it mean to us? You know, why, why, why even think it? Why even say, if we don't know what it means, if we don't know what the reason is, and so I think that, you know, uh, getting back to Charles Krauthammer, he said that. He said, you know, um, he said, the fates, the fates have otherwise for me. The fates have something else in store for me. <clears throat> and I don't know what that means for him, other than just sort of a, a way that he could say it that a lot of his followers or his listeners or his readers, are people familiar with who Charles Krauthammer is? Does anyone not know who he is? You don't know who he is. So he's a, he's a, he's a really brilliant syndicated columnist, very bright writer. And um, he, when he was very young, he became quadriplegic. Uh, but in spite of that, he um, he studied. He became he actually became the director of pediatric psychiatry at UMass. Um, just a real bright guy. And then he left the medical profession because he just found a call of some kind in political commentary and cultural commentary. Anyway, so just to sort of say that the, the fates so to speak. And I guess that's a generic way. But a lot of people do say everything happens for a reason. Does it mean everything that happens in life, does it mean that whatever happens in life, everything is going to be fine? Well, again, we have to understand our terms. So, as the author here says, when the doctor calls and the cancer has returned, is it true that all things work together for good? When the police officer shows up at your door on your son's prom night, is it true that all things work together for good? When you lose your job, your marriage of 30 years begins falling apart, or your stock portfolio takes a dive right before you retire, is it true that all things work together for good? 
Where do you find the good news when the doctor says, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do but make her comfortable? For many people, Romans 8.28 merely seems like an unkept promise, or worse, a flat-out lie. If we don't understand what Scripture is saying. Another thing that we can do, and I guess some do this, I would never encourage you to do it, is to go to someone that's been in a bad accident and had something terrible happen, and use this verse as if it's supposed to be a source of comfort to them. And we know that all things happen you know, for good. I just want to say, you can say that when you get this happen to you, and I'll be encouraged. But, but there's something going on with this verse that we want to understand. Uh, there's so much, in a sense, that we don't know what's going on sort of behind the scenes. But there's one thing we do know, all things work together for good. So the first question is, for whom? Do all things work together for good for everyone? No, right, it's very specific, right? Paul says this is a promise for Christians only. It's for those who love God. Or saying in another way from God's angle, those who are called to salvation according to His purpose. Uh, if, if we look at the whole context, in Romans 8, Paul has talked a good deal about suffering. And it's particularly from verse 18 on, he talks about he doesn't consider the sufferings of this world worthy to be compared with the glory that's coming. You know, it's just, There's no comparison. And so he's talking a fair amount about it. He goes on to say in verse 26, In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And the, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified, etc. You know the rest of it, or have at least heard it before. So, I guess another way in which we use this is just saying that, and it is true that the Spirit helps us in all our prayers, I guess, but there's a very specific focus here, and it's suffering, and how it relates to the Christian. What is the ultimate good that Paul is talking about here? When he says all things work together for good, what is the good that Paul is talking about here? To be conformed to the likeness of Christ. That's right. To be conformed to the likeness of Christ. That's the ultimate good for which God is weaving all things together. The good of making us more like Christ. Or as Paul said, being conformed to the image of His Son. In other words, in this instance, our, de- our definition of good should be God's definition. To be conformed to the image of His Son, being made more like Jesus. That's why we say all things work together sort of for good. The good is being conformed to the image of Christ. I mean, who suffered more than Christ? Tony. I was going to say not only that, but I think also it's that beyond the grave that the promise is good in the ending of that succession to be glorified. Yeah, I think it's true, but I, don't, I still don't think that's the focus of the verse. I mean, I, th- I do think that's true, but the focus is, the, is... And of course, once we're with Christ, once we see Him, we'll be just like Him because we'll see Him as He is. So there's that truth there. But on this side, this is why this is meaningful. It's, this is a, this side of the cemetery verse, you know? <laughs> so... Uh, I, I think it's important that we just keep those in mind. And, and, and the author offers a good example. You know the story perhaps of uh, Jim Elliot, right? Yeah. Who, who's Jim Elliot? Who was Jim Elliot? Yeah. That's right. That's right. He went to the Aka Indians. And things were going good a little bit initially, but then they ended up killing him brutally. And, you know, he was so young and he, he had um, 
he had, it seemed like a great mission before him. And obviously it was very tragic for his wife, Elizabeth Elliot. Um, but years later, Elizabeth Elliot and uh, Rachel Saint, who was the sister of Nate Saint, interesting name, they became further involved in continuing missions to the Aka Indians. And they ended up meeting a young uh, Aka Indian girl that had run away, and they learned the language from her, and they were able to go back and minister. Some, and many came to the Lord, including some of the very ones that killed her husband. So what was the good that God brought from such a tragedy of Jim Elliot? Well, many Akas came to saving faith in Christ. The women were used by God to share the gospel and gain the testimony of the power of forgiveness. All that fits in very well with conformity to Christ. And that's what all of Scripture is about, really, is conformity to Christ. So remember, how does it fit in with the big picture, right? And so, yeah, everything that sort of happens... We always have to keep in mind when we think of this verse, whether it's a, a car accident or you know loss of this or loss of that, is God's purpose that I be conformed to the image of Christ more important or most important to me? And sometimes those events are, are done by God to show us that it's not the most important thing to us, but that He wants it to be. It's not a, well, you know, you weren't making Christ number one, so therefore, here's your punishment. You know, boy, we, 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 put the, we get the tail wagging the dog too often in those things. You know, God wants us to be conformed to the image of Christ for His glory and for our ultimate fulfillment. We can't be fulfilled otherwise. To the, to the extent we're conformed to the image of Christ, we're, we're complete. And, but it's a hard thing, isn't it? Right? This is hard, isn't it? Um, I, I, don't, I don't think there's anything sort of easy in this. Um, suffering is difficult. But then we know we have... So in the midst of suffering, we certainly sometimes don't know how to pray. It's good to know that the Spirit intercedes for us when we don't know how to pray when we're suffering. Sometimes we can't even get out in, in, in deep grief. We can't even get out a right thought. You know, we just all we can do is just sort of sit there before God. I, you know, a theologian, I think, goes from theologian sometimes to, you know, remember I'm just a regular person when things happen that are really tough. So, uh, anything else on that verse? And, and or... Has that verse been really meaningful at, at times? I, you know, I'm sorry? Very often. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think that even if we don't think of that verse, I do think sometimes we know that God's working in our life to, you know, that suffering is meaningful. I mean, obviously it's been appointed to you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for His name. And that suffering is, say, I mean, Christ suffered. But there's just no getting around it. How difficult, how powerful, how ugly is sin that suffering is necessary? You know? Uh, now, there are some things that are just hard to, um, hard to fathom. There, this, this does eventually run into the problem a little bit of the problem of evil, at least for me. There are things that happen that I just cannot get my head around. Okay? Um, so, I mean, and I can see where... <coughs> You know, I was, there was an article in the news this week where a guy was sentenced to death because he tortured his girlfriend's eight-year-old son. You know, tortured him and killed him. You know, shot him with a BB gun, hit him with stuff, locked him in a cabinet, starved him. That's all, I mean, how do you... How does that even happen? Exactly. How does that happen? Um, and so, as a... I can see that, so for that unbelieving people, for those unbelieving people, what do they have to hold on to with, with anything like that? What is even, a, a, say, a, 
I mean, I, I can't imagine, obviously, this wouldn't happen in a truly sort of Christian family, but if you know people that that happens to, if you're the person, say you're a relative of that person, somehow, you know, that experience, God is still going to work in there. It's not the end of the story. God's going to sort of work in there to continue. But, that, but it is very hard. There's no question about it. It is very hard. The theology of, of, of suffering and all that stuff, is it's there for our understanding, but it's not there to alleviate or to mitigate or to rid us of the emotional experience of suffering. We're supposed to have deep emotional pain. We're supposed to. Okay. <laughs> Here comes my once a year favorite, most annoying verse, and uh, maybe it is for you too. Second Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. First of all, let me say, whether a verse is my least favorite or not is irrelevant. I don't know why I say something like that. Who cares, right? Um, but it is important for us to understand this verse because every May, it pops up. Right? This becomes... This becomes as popular as John 3.16, at least in sort of Christian circles and semi-Christian circles. Unfortunately, focus on the family really emphasizes this verse around the National Day of Prayer. And it becomes for many people part of the tradition of the National Day of Prayer. Um, We have nothing to do with this verse as far as our lives as New Covenant Christians in terms of something that we can pray in the way that it was prayed then. This doesn't belong to us. The principles and things will. We'll talk about that. But this verse in a specific sense, we don't get to pray for America. We don't get to pray for America and repent and and believe that God is going to heal our land as a result. It's not possible. It completely contradicts all of Scripture to believe that. It's a complete error to think that that's the truth. Because if if my people who, who I call by my name seek my face and humble themselves and pray, then I will heal their land. How does that apply to me and, and, and the church in that way? It doesn't. Simply, it just simply doesn't. You've got to keep in mind that much of what took place happened in ancient civilizations where languages, lifestyles, systems of government, and cultural values varied from age to age and geographical location. The stories in the Bible feature real people who lived in ages ago in cultures very different from ours. You know, it's just very different from ours. And I, it's so important to remember that. When you're going to remember Scripture, particularly... I was going to say particularly Old Testament, but really that's only 1,500 years older than the New Testament in most cases. We have very little in common with a lot of the cultural practices of, of ancient Mesopotamian people. Next to nothing. Yes. New Testament Christians have no promised physical land? No. No, we have no promise to anything. I mean, even Abraham, but even Old Testament... There's a, but see, there's a sense in which we know that Abraham wasn't looking for a home in that place, right? Hebrews tells us he was looking for a city whose foundation and maker is God. But this particular verse did have a very particular setting. So, um, And it's full of great spiritual truths, right? The need for humility and prayer and the pursuit of God and repentance. Those are all good things. It promises God's listening ear and forgiveness and healing. And on the surface... The author writes here, it seems to be an ideal verse to claim for believers who long to see righteousness, truth, and blessing upon their country. But that's just not the case. This was part of God's response, years later it came, to Solomon's dedication of the temple. This is one of the most magnificent prayers um, in all of Scripture, is the dedication of the temple that Solomon makes. You'll find in First or Second Chronicles, like, first. must be first, right? It has to be first. 
Um, if you can get, if you can plow through all the first seven, eight chapters of names, um, that's hard. I mean, that's as hard as some of the early pages of um, Leviticus. <coughs> anyway, um, so Solomon stands before the temple and he delivers this amazing prayer, and his hands are hands are uplifted, right? And you know, just imagine that sort of glorious scene of what that must be like, and then. The prayer is, if your people are, you know, taken away captive, if they repent and turn and look towards the temple, you would forgive their land, you would forgive them and you would heal them. You've seen that prayer, you're familiar with that prayer? So, so the prayer is at the dedication of the temple, which has been built. And remember, the temple, what's the significance of the temple? Yeah, right, I mean, there's, there's no greater... That's God's presence. That's where God is, it's sort of an Old Testament spot. Okay? There was no place holier than the temple. That's why when Jesus said one greater than the temple is here, people are like, ah! He said, what? Right? So, and, and the promise was that um, if they would repent, if they would turn, and, he, and, and Solomon lists a number of conditions under which they, would, they could possibly do that. If they turn and look towards the temple, right? So wherever they were, they would probably, if they were taken away captive somewhere, you know, a little bit further east, they would turn west and pray towards the temple. Well, they really couldn't take much further west because then they'd be praying from the ocean. But, you know, whether it was north or south, wherever they were, they were to literally turn their, their direction and their focus to the place where the temple is. Yes? Do you think that's, well, it seems pretty obvious that's what the uh, Islamist people yeah. do. they got to find out where Mecca is. Yeah, they bow towards Mecca. Yeah, every day, they're very, you know, the faithful, faithful, to, the faithful ones are very faithful to that. Five times a day, bowing and praying towards Mecca because that's their holy place, you know. Um, so years pass Solomon completes his own his own palace and then God says at one point to him um, in the middle of the night the Lord appears to Solomon private he says I've heard your prayer and chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And so this ought to inform us that this prayer is not applicable to the church. Does God send locusts in the United States and pestilence? I don't know, but if he does, he doesn't tell us anywhere he's doing it because of sin. We don't, we don't have any sense of why. I haven't seen locusts in a long time. I get... Stink bugs? Are those from God? Is that a punishment on the land? Uh, pestilence? I mean, we've defeated almost every form, of, in many ways, every form of pestilence. Sort of, but you would have thought differently in the 30s in, yep. the, in the Midwest. Yeah, you would have. That's a good point, too. So you would have, there would be locusts then. And wouldn't it be a mistake to look at that and say, wow, God is doing this? Well, there's a certain sense in the sovereignty of God in which that's being allowed to happen. But we have no reason to believe that the pestilence and the locusts are God's judgment on a particular nation for sin. We can assume that... Well, I don't know. We've got to be careful to assume anything. So this is a very specific thing. Um, the National Day of Prayer, I think, then really can't be taken seriously when it builds on this verse as a reason for the church to pray. Okay, The, the National Day of Prayer, again... God bless focus on the family and everything they do. Nobody's right about everything, right? So, uh, not even Todd is right about everything. 
So, the National Day of Prayer has no business. I'm sitting here minding my own business, by the way. Has no business, in a sense, doing this. And, and again, what are we going to do? Stand up that day and have, you know. This is one of the reasons why I like James White, for example. He's the kind of guy that would take this and just sort of get in the church's face. He's a little bit... He, he pushes the envelope, you know what I mean? And, and I, I, he's, you know, I, by his own admission, I think he would say that. Uh, he's a great brother. He, he definitely pushes the envelope. But we need, need people that push the envelope. And you don't, by the way? I do. <laughs> it, was, it was to this king... It was to these people, it was in this time, it was in this place that God's word is for. And so it's not this sort of ongoing promise. Um, and again, as some have mentioned, the healing that is promised is specifically a healing of physical land. Throughout the Old Testament, God threatened to curse the land. In fact, he got angry when they didn't give the land a Sabbath rest. Right? When they didn't give the land its Sabbath rest, God said, okay, fine. I'm going to get it from you one way or the other. You don't think that it also refers to the people of that land? Uh, Well, I think in a way it does because if the land fails them, they're done. They're a completely uh, agrarian people. You know, they're an agricultural people. Everything is based on the land. If the land is healthy, they're healthy. If the land doesn't yield its fruit, they're all done. They're not just, you know, they're not going to import from another nation. They're not going to, they're, they're, they're Haitian in this regard. You know what I mean? Uh, Haiti, if it weren't for ships coming into Haiti all the time, that country would be dead in 20 years. What I, what I basically we, meant was uh, where there's quite a particular land mm-hmm. uh, of people. Mm-hmm. Not, for example, you take a look at Haiti, a perfect example of uh, all the trees down and everything else. Yeah, that's land. But people in every land, or many lands, are really suffering more than other places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, except that the text says, "I will heal their land." But it also it also says, it also says, <coughs> "I will forgive their sin and heal their land." Yeah. But the emphasis, I mean, obviously, the brokenness and the separation from God is huge. But you've got to keep in mind the big thing in Israel's mind was the blessing of land. Yes. It was that they were going to have a land, a promised land. Moses was kept from going into the promised land. Everything was land. The land flowing. They were going to have a land of their own. You can't be a nation without a land. You, and, and so, the land was... So, it's very important that we not spiritualize the land to mean people. There is something in there for the people. And there's a connection with the people to the land, right? Of course. But, it is to heal the land. And the land... But that's not just... Again, here's a difference that separates thousands of years of theology and culture. The land was everything to these people. We don't even understand that. A lot of us work in cubicles and we, if we don't go outside at some point during the day, we're not going to see outside. Many of us work in buildings where our office doesn't even have windows. I have no window in my office. I've got to go out of my office and go somewhere else to see the outside. So I don't even go outside. I mean, I do. I, I go out. My little Fitbit tells me at 10 of every hour how many steps I've got to go to complete 250 for the hour. So I get up and go, you know. And I'm constantly up and down the stairs and everything. I don't sit still for too long because my grandfather would say, you got ants in your pants. <laughs> um, I think that when they, people say that nowadays, 
to heal the land. Mm-hmm. I think they're talking more about the morality mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff yeah. to heal the people yeah. in the land. Which is, and that's, that's why they shouldn't use this prayer for that. Right, right. You don't get to spiritualize this prayer for that purpose. You don't get to hijack this verse. Besides, I have no promise at all. And you and I have no promise at all. Scripture tells me quite the contrary. Things are going to continue to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. The love of many is going to grow cold. I mean, in the last days, which we're in and have been, things are going to continually get worse. They're not going to get better. I have no reason to believe America is going to get better. None at all. I think people will get saved. But I don't think our government is going to turn to a more moral government. I don't. Look at the proliferation in the last... Well, you could say 60 years, but even in the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. Sexual immorality is not only rampant, but it is, it's expected. It's like, you, you know, you should be that. We, we, you know. Yeah, Trump talked about grabbing a woman by her genitals, but after all, he's, a, you know, he's got some really good ideas. You know? How did we get there? How did we get there? And we can say, oh yeah, but we got, then we get into the, well, it's the lesser of two evils. When did we decide that it's okay to go for the lesser of two evils, right? And I say all that just to say, not to have a political discussion, but just to say, we ain't getting better. There's no medicine to cure this. Things are going to continue to get worse, and they're going to continue to get uglier. So much so, that now the suggestion that sexual diseases might be passed on by artificial intelligence, artificial robots. People are buying robots. There's a big industry now where people are buying robots for sexual gratification. So... I mean, you know, in a sense, that's the inevitable result of having such an objective understanding of human sexuality that's only there for your gratification. The logical end of that is to create something that's going to satisfy that. When you completely leave people out, when you leave out the human thing, you know? Isn't that great when people get to walk through during that kind of a thing? But, wow! These people are whack. I thought these, I thought these fundamentalists were puritanical. Pigs? <laughs> um, so this is not in any way, shape, or form a promise of spiritual revival. Please. But what does the New Testament tell us about praying for our country, praying for our people, praying for our leaders? Right? First Timothy 2, 1-4. to First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? So that we may lead a peaceful and, quality, uh, peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. So, within this verse that's misunderstood, there's another little verse that's misunderstood, and that is that God desires all people to be saved, and since all people are not saved, God's not accomplishing His will. But, if we have the context of kings, people in high position, I mean, He wants, he wants leaders to be saved, too. He wants people everywhere to be saved. So I'm not going to get into, well, what's His decretive will versus His, you know, passive will versus His active will. I've got no room for that. Just, just reach out to everyone, right? Reach out to the lost. Pray for your country. Pray for your leaders. Okay? Uh, it was very easy to pray for uh, if, you're, if, so if, if you're, depending on what side of the political spectrum you are, it's very easy to pray for the people with whom you agree. Right? Yeah. And not to pray with people with whom you disagree. There are some people that I have to constantly watch myself from putting outside humanity. I disagree with them so much. 
which is, you know, I have to struggle to remember this person's every bit created in the image of God as I am. Right? So you've got to be very careful, man. Politics is dangerous business. So, and in, in, in politicizing the, the life and the world is extremely dangerous. But we know that we should be praying for our government and for our kings, people in high positions. Why? So that we, God's people, may lead a peaceful and quiet, godly and dignified in every way. Now, I don't want to get off on this verse too much, but I don't even think that that verse means necessarily that God's going to respond to our prayers by providing moral good kings. I think it's good for God's people to be praying. If we're praying people focused on God in the midst of whatever's going on, then we're going to live peaceable lives, quiet lives in a sense. But hey, that's that verse can kind of go in different ways. So, uh, any more thoughts on that? Do we understand why? So the next time you hear that, next May, when you hear the National Day of Prayer, and you hear that verse, you can just say, "Wow!" But they get such a great verse in First Timothy. You know what I mean? What a great verse. What are they going to use that verse for? It's because of a lack of hermeneutical discipline. And the church needs to be able to correct the church. Somebody needs to, because that verse becomes so public, someone needs to... I mean, I know that we in the body we all love one another and get along and... and Calvinists put up with Arminians and Arminians put up with Calvinists and dispensationalists and pre-tribbers and post-tribbers and amillennialists and post-millennialists. We're supposed to all get along and keep these in-house controversies. But somebody needs to stand up and say to focus on the family or whoever else pushes that verse. What are you doing that for? Why, why are you using that verse? What does that have to do with the price of pickles? You know what I mean? Why are you using that verse? Stop using it. It's bad theology. Stick to the gifting that God has given you and focusing on the family. Because you, 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 you're sending out a wrong message to only the church, not only the church but to unbelievers. It, it isn't just... I don't think this is just a passing fancy, not a big deal. It's an extremely big deal. There is some parallelism going on, though. I mean, I think you're properly disconnecting the misuse from... Uh, it, it's a covenantal promise... To Israel mm-hmm. from a land promise mm-hmm. perspective. On the other hand, when you read the book of Revelation, the seals and the trumpets mm-hmm. treat it more of a world problem in terms mm-hmm. of a world unwilling to repent like Israel, mm-hmm. uh, a world that continues and increases in sin, like yeah. David said, that those who barter for idols, their sins will be multiplied. God's response to that, to the world, and sending plagues mm-hmm. to the degree affecting the fresh water and the sea and the land and mm-hmm. the rest that men might repent and they don't. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, there's kind of a parallelism going on how God, in a general sense, also mm-hmm. treats a world that's unrepentant, mm-hmm. continuing and increasing in sin. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we can expect some of the things that God did to Israel, some of the things He's also going to do to a world. Yeah, it's kind of like God... Um, it's kind of like... So we have the natural revelation to demonstrate the reality of God. Mm. So if God withdraws His hand, then that should say something to people as well. You know what I mean? There's mm-hmm. an inherent... I mean, there is a little bit of... Again, nobody nobody can truly be fully atheist. They may think that they are, but they're not. Very few people, I think, are actually utterly convinced because if they were, they wouldn't say half the things that they do. It's, atheism is such a... Atheists are the most interesting people. They're such interesting people. Um, they're so genuinely disingenuous. <laughs> okay, Jesus as the firstborn over all creation... 
So who abuses this verse more than anyone? Who said that? Yeah, Jehovah's Witnesses, right? They use this verse, and why do they use it? What do they think it attests to? Yeah, right. They were de- denying the deity of Jesus. They say, well, look, he's the firstborn. Um, is it Colossians in this hymn, actually, which is Colossians 1.15, is part of a Christological hymn. He is, the invi- he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. They would sing this. This is part of a longer hymn in Colossians. People would sing this in the early churches. Right? Just like we sing, Behold Our God. Right? They would sing, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, singing about Jesus. So again, the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that upon His death, His humanity was completely annihilated and Jesus was raised from the dead as an immortal spirit who returned to heaven once again to become the Archangel Michael. Right? Furthermore, it was thought it was through this created angel, Michael, who became Christ, that God or Jehovah created all other things in the universe. We'll talk about that in a minute. It's important to note that the word firstborn can be used in a very different sense. In fact, it has to be. It also may refer to the idea of position, rank, or prominence. Such was the case with King David in the Old Testament, who was the last in the birth order of his family, but anointed as, quote, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth, Psalm 89.27. That's a designation that the inspired word gives to David. He was the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Israel was called my firstborn. Well, there were a lot of nations before Israel. A lot of nations before Israel. So that certainly doesn't mean, like, the first, ontologically speaking, or... Uh, in, in sense of being, okay. So, um, and even uh, the Lord tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, again, Israel is my firstborn son. And so the the Old Testament understanding is so it, it, there's such an important understanding that needs to carry over from the Old Testament to the New with respect to firstborn. Um, the firstborn in the Old Testament. Like for example, we know that during the uh, during the Passover, the firstborn was taken from every family that did not have the lamb, and the lamb was to take the place of the firstborn. Okay, it was only the firstborn that was supposed to die. Okay, um, and for that matter, it was only of a particular generation because Pharaoh himself was a firstborn and he didn't die. So it was for a particular generation at that time. The firstborn was going to be taken, and the lamb became the substitute for that firstborn, who in the firstborn always represented the entire family. Okay? Firstborn always represented the entire family. Very important, the theology of firstborn. The firstborn always represented the entire family. It still does. Right? Jesus is considered the firstborn of the dead, right? First, it also says first fruits in another place, but firstborn. Uh, and so, Jesus himself, in so many ways, um, becomes, when we think of the Levitical priesthood, God took the Levitical priesthood, they almost became sort of an atoning representation because instead of taking all the firstborns of Israel, God took the Levitical priesthood. Okay? So there's a lot of fascinating stuff behind the whole concept of firstborn that, you know, I think we could probably easily spend a couple of classes on. It's very deep theology. It's deeply embedded in the atonement and in redemption. Uh, I was reading an interesting book says Jesus is never referred to as Redeemer in the New Testament. And I had to say, wait a minute. Well, of course, it's all about redemption, but he's never once called the Redeemer in the New Testament. But it's not necessary to be called the Redeemer. He's called the firstborn. 
and the firstborn and redemption are, 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 are hand in hand in Old Testament theology. Right? They're, they're one and they're oftentimes one and the same. So, and this, this, of course, comes into the whole concept of election. Because if the firstborn is supposed to represent the entirety of a particular family or a particular people, and God accepts that firstborn in place of, then we know that there's a certain family of God, a certain people of God, that Jesus represents. It's a very, it's, so, the whole concept of firstborn, I know I'm going a little deeper here, uh, the whole concept of firstborn has a lot to do with election as well. Okay, who, who's... Who's the atonement for? What's he? What's he substituting for? As we use the, you know, the, 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 the doctrine of sort of substitution. The firstborn in Old Testament ancient thought was the first. This would represent many others, taken instead of. Um, just just one additional thought. Reading this, uh, bless you. I think this was from a gentleman named Tom Holland in his book. It was either uh, Contours of Pauline Theology or his book The Divine Marriage, which is a uh, uh, on Romans. Uh, but he mentions that when Mary and um, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple, the question is sort of they didn't need to bring Jesus to the temple. There was nothing about bringing a child to the temple. Mary went to make purification for herself, and the fact that she sang Hannah's song gives us indication that she was giving over her firstborn the firstborn became representative just like Hannah sung her song gave him over to the Lord so that Mary and Joseph knew that uh, and they didn't redeem uh, uh, they didn't redeem their firstborn they didn't do anything to redeem back their firstborn so Jesus belonged to God immediately and he went on to make the case that therefore when Jesus was 12 years old in the temple and said didn't you know I should be about my father's business they should have recognized why he was there and what that actually means Right. Anyway, that's just a little interesting aside for some of you that might sort of uh, appreciate that stuff. There's a real rich theology of firstborn that has literally nothing to do in most instances with order of birth. Yes. What's interesting, though, <coughs> that side that you you explain in relationship to election is another side of the coin that where God purposely chooses the secondborn. Mm-hmm. Manifest his sovereign choice in election mm-hmm. over the firstborn. Well, exactly. The secondborn, really, in a certain sense, is the firstborn in that mm-hmm. regard. So, even when Scripture says Mary brought forth her firstborn son, we always think, and we just think different than they thought. We always think that literally means the first one. He was that also. But Mary's firstborn is even more important than that when you think of the whole concept of firstborn. That wasn't the word that just got sort of used in Old Testament thought that could possibly be understood as something else. Yes? Would that not also uh, be a reference to preeminence? Yes. Yeah, it definitely refers to sovereign, and that's why we see it in the Psalms and some of the coronation-type language of the Psalms. So it's preeminence, it's priority, it's sovereignty. Um, James White in his book The Forgotten Trinity talks about that for a couple of pages. He talks about what that you know, prototokos means that firstborn um, and, and other, other writers that are very much in tune with the fact that Paul is rich in Old Testament theology. Paul did not submit himself to Greek Hellenistic thought and, and, and convert the old... You can't convert Old Testament theology to Greek Hellenism. You can't. Paul was extremely steeped in Old Testament theology. Everything he did was Hebrew Old Testament theology. He brought that understanding to everything. Uh... And that's a good example for us because we're not supposed to in any way abandon our thought patterns and thought systems. We can find a way to contextualize them 
Well, that's a different thing altogether than changing them to accommodate sort of the world. Uh, maybe uh, Alice can answer this, but I read something this week that the Southern Baptist Convention is in danger of moving to an egalitarian position. Awesome. And there's some concern about that. Is that? Uh, there's always concern about that. Okay. <laughs> but, I mean, there's more concern about that with everything going on right. within uh, the hierarchy and mm-hmm. the, the upper administration um, because they're thinking if there were more women in positions mm-hmm. of power, then right. that would... Right cause some of these issues to not be played. okay and so there's a brilliant example right and now is that so is that is it safe to say that's closer to happening than ever before um I mean no okay good if you look at how liberal this Southern Baptist Convention was hmm? pre-1985 um not really good so it, it's I mean we're, we're in a cultural moment right and that's the in 10 to 15 years yes. we're going to look back on this and Yes. So this this whole I hope so. Yeah. So this whole attitude of like you know, and you hear this too. If women were in charge, there'd be fewer wars. How many of you have heard that? And I want to say, are you kidding me? Please. I mean, what is that even mean? I mean, to me, that's one of the most denigrating, insulting things that could be said about men. If women were in charge, as soon as I hear that, I know I'm dealing with an idiot. All right. And so I got to just sort of stand back. I got to relax. I got to take a breath. And if I'm smart enough, I'll just walk away. <laughs> Uh, I gave up on worrying about that a long time ago. But the simple point is this. What's the point of saying that? Does that mean that... um, It's not a good analogy because there certainly could be women presidents and all that stuff. I mean, that wouldn't mean to be fewer or less of what's funny. The statement is just sexist. It's just demeaning. It's it's just vulgar. But it's... uh, We don't want to... When I said that egalitarianism, you may not know what that means, but the whole idea of what is leadership in church supposed to look like? Right? And what is meant in First Timothy? And it's crystal, crystal, crystal clear in Scripture. There's no reason for believing ever that, that there's a biblical reason for having women as elders or having authority over men and teaching over men in the church. Period. End of story. End of discussion. Now we can talk about sort of how that works itself out. Paul refers back to creation when he's talking about that. So we know that there's very something built into. And it was before the fall. So... Male headship among the people of God was always there before the fall. And because we've listened to the culture for so long, we think that headship means inequality. And we've contributed to that problem by having inequality for so long, in a lot of ways, right? So, the church has to wrestle with these things, But I, and I just point this out as an example of, we cannot let sort of, the world's understanding of things come into the church and redefine the church in any way, shape, or form. Okay? Um, And there's a lot of, again, Christian denominations that have done that, that have female pastors. Okay? That just strictly violates God's Word in, in very obvious, glaringly obvious ways. Again, referring all the way back to creation. And I'm going to, I hope, do a study in here sometime about what, what that's all about and help to clear up, I think, misunderstandings as I'm coming to grips with them myself of how, uh, what is the role of both men and women in Christian ministry? Because there's a lot to be said for that. But in the context of just sort of what I'm saying, making a point about we can't confuse firstborn or we can't confuse other ideas about our faith and about theology because we're getting clues from the culture and reading them back into Scripture. Okay? And I just use that as an example of it. The church is taking its cues from the world in a lot of ways and from things that have nothing to do with God. 
Um, if indeed all things in heaven and earth were created by Jesus, then it makes no sense to say that Jesus himself was a created being. Right? Furthermore, the fact that Paul says Jesus was before all things means that Jesus was before all things. He existed before creation. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses and their slanderous, godless, Christless theology literally insert a word in there and say, He was a creator of all other things. All other things. In other words, God made Him and then Jesus made everything else. And we have to look at that and say, okay, this is just a few little words. How important is it? <laughs> it's the most important thing at all. To, say, to just take the text the inspired text that God gave His people and to say that Jesus created all other things. First of all, demonstrates a, a profound lack of understanding of firstborn in Old Testament theology. And second of all, it's just poor grammar, syntax, hermeneutic, everything. And so when they say He's the creator of all other things, they're just, again, diminishing His role, assigning Him to a lesser role than His divine status. And we have to be careful in Scripture that we don't do these things. So again, there's good. in addition to sort of learning what the most misused verses are, we learn that the reason why they're misused is people aren't paying attention to God. They're not paying attention to A, the big picture. Okay? What is God doing? Who is God? What is He doing? What's the nature of God? What's the nature of man? Get those things squared away first, alright? And then you move into these other things. And it's easy to see from the misunderstandings what's been missed in, 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 sort of in the background. You know what I mean? This is standard... When, when learning how to, to golf or to run or to you know, any number of things where you see you're teaching somebody else and you see they're doing something wrong you say, oh, you're doing that because you, back when you were learning step two you didn't really learn step two very good. Let's get you back to step two and then you'll be able to do step eight a lot better. You know, so you go and sort of, And this is what's happening with all kinds of unbelief and all kinds of misunderstanding of Scripture. Uh, I, I've got a number more of these texts that we're going to do. I'm going to bail in about two or three minutes because um, I'm going to go upstairs and warm up with <laughs> the worship a little bit. I'll be on the be on the djembe drum this morning, so um, I'll be making a joyful noise. I can promise you, <laughs> to the Lord. So we are going to cut out about five minutes early, but um, and that's okay. But we'll pick up next week with money is the root of all evil, and we'll see here the failure of some translations, right? Um, you know, a lot of that comes from the King James, this particular one, where it says money is the root of all kinds of the root of all kinds of evil. That's just a bad. That's just a bad translation. You know, it's not accurate. I hate to say bad. It's, it's not an accurate translation. It's not an accurate understanding of what's in the text. So. I have a question. What's the the first the first Timothy you said that would be better to use than uh, letting the nation turn and humble themselves and pray? First Timothy one. Uh, Tell you in a second here. I'm sorry. Yeah, what he said. First Timothy two one to four. Yeah, sure. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. That's hard, man. Right? I mean, it's kind of hard, isn't it? Uh. But that doesn't mean we're thankful for what they've done. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. So, um, 
There's a lot. Don't get too hung up on. I get distracted for a second on the on the on the male female in the church leadership thing. Don't let that be a distraction to you. I want to cover that more down the road um, because it goes right along with gender as well, and you know because the church has to be very careful now. The church is in a pivotal position, I think, to be able to help. If not help the world, at least stand firm on what gender means. Okay, so I, th- I, I really want to have that study down the road. I, but it's going to take a lot of um, it's going to take a lot of careful preparation, confronting some of my own chauvinisms, all this kind of stuff, right? And to, to hopefully get that right, both female and male chauvinists, because if you don't think there's female chauvinism, you're sadly mistaken. Um, but you know, hopefully we can find a way to address that as a body. I got to talk to, you know, some of the, maybe have some of the other men take various things on that uh, through careful thought and discussion and consideration. Uh, but anyway, I, I got to fly and go upstairs. Let's pray, Lord. We thank you for our time this morning, and we hope that the verses that we count on for life and faith and godliness, the verses that we've understood accurately, and that we're always willing to carefully consider them and think about them and to genuinely pray them too to the the word that you've given us for our completion we would be complete in it so please help us in that continually Lord all that's said here we pray uh, if it glorifies you let it stick if it doesn't glorify you Lord let it go by the by Uh, but but thank you for our our special time together with our family Uh, we love you and we love each other very dearly and uh, So we look forward to worshiping in you that way. Amen.